I am so excited. I think we have an incredible gift on Mother's Day. You know, yesterday, I'm doing my Facebook thing, and Darlene says, and she's doing hers. She's got her, her uh, smartphone, and she says, oh, Becky's in labor. I'm like, sweet, cool. And I go on, I look on, and sure enough, Nate's Facebooking. <laughs> Becky's in labor. I'm like, okay, cool. And then I, it couldn't have been more than 10 minutes after I did. I know this didn't happen in 10 minutes, but, well, he's pretty casual about it. Yeah, you know, um, I, I just wanted to give you an update. Baby was born in our bedroom. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> That's pretty cool. And uh, so I... Facebook back. I said, you know, Nate, there are times you don't have to be on Facebook. <laughs> this could be one of them. I don't know. <laughs> Just saying. But uh, what a blessing to have uh, that. And what a great Mother's Day weekend. And I, I, um, I kind of felt like when, when the staff and elders first asked me to preach today, like I drew the short straw. Thank you. <laughs> Hoping somebody would get that. If you don't know me, my last name is Short. Larry Short is my name. So, uh, anyway, um, so kind of my first uh, principle, sort of like the Hippocratic Oath. You all know the Hippocratic Oath, right? Uh, medical professionals uh, like my wife. I guess just doctors actually sign the oath, but they all kind of want to uphold the oath. And one of the key principles is do no harm. <laughs> and that's kind of my first goal today. And <laughs> I want to encourage. All the women in our midst, and, and I've become aware in reading this last week um, that uh, many women actually get really depressed at church on Mother's Day for a variety of reasons. And uh, there was a, an interesting blog in Hermeneutics, which is uh, Christianity Today's women's blog, uh, where the blogger wrote about her experience and the experience of a lot of other women coming to church. And um, a lot of women have experienced loss that makes Mother's Day really hard. They Maybe they are... Um, unable to have children, or they've had children and lost them, or they have children who have gone astray. There's a number of different reasons that, that Mother's Day can be painful for women. And uh, we also don't want, we don't want, we don't want women who uh, have experienced loss to feel marginalized. And we often do things in church, that, and we'll do them today. We'll have all the moms stand up and give them a rose and stuff like that. And I think we should do that stuff because it's Mother's Day. We want to celebrate them. They have an incredible impact on our lives. But One of the important things I think I want to communicate today is that while parenting, mothering or fathering, is an incredible assignment from God, an incredible opportunity to do ministry, it's not the only assignment that God gives us, and not not even necessarily the most important assignment all the time. And you might say, oh, really? But I'm I'm going to show you kind of that in some scriptures we we walk through it. And so what I want you to hear today, uh, I want men to hear that uh, the women in our lives um, are valuable not because, just because they're mothers. They're valuable because they're children of God, just like you and I guys are, are children of God. And that, is, that should be, that is their identity. They are sisters in Christ. Uh, we're their brothers. Um, scripture says there's not, in Christ there's neither Jew, Jew nor Greek, uh, male nor female, we are children of God together. That's our primary identity. And God gives us a variety of assignments through our, our lives. And um, we need to celebrate each other for those assignments, whether, whether that's raising up kids, which is an incredible thing, uh, or whether that's some other assignment. So we're going to talk about that a little bit more. And um, I, just, I mainly don't want to depress women here today. That's my, my main goal. So um, 
But of course, recognizing moms is okay. We're going to do that uh, toward the end of the service. I also wanted to let you know, so I, I talked to Darlene about this, and I said, man, I'm feeling really inadequate. Uh, what, what do I, you know, would you like to preach <laughs> today? And she said, if you love me, you won't ask me that. <laughs> She is, as you know, she's an incredibly wise woman, much wiser than I am. I think she'd be much more interesting to listen to than I am, but um, maybe that's why I'm up here and she's not, I don't know. But, <laughs> but I asked her, I said, what, what, as a woman, as a mom, what, what would you like to hear? What could I do? And she gave me three things, three assignments. She said, uh, share with us stories of women in the Bible who changed the world because of their faith. Because there are lots of them, and we don't always hear about them. Uh, in church, which I think is unfortunate. So that's my first goal is to do that. Second thing she says is talk about your mom, what she meant to you. And that's going to be hard because I realized when I sat there and during the very first uh, slideshow, uh, I'm trying not to cry and I'm thinking about my mom. My mom passed away in 2000 and was the most significant influence of my life, my early life, until I met Darlene. So that's going to be hard, but I'm going to try to do that. And uh, third thing is she said, be brief. Uh, don't talk the whole time. <laughs> Like I said, she's an incredibly wise woman, right? Uh, to start, let's pray. And I'm actually ahead of schedule already. Good. Sweet. Okay. <laughs> let's pray. Uh, Lord, I ask you that you would work through my feeble attempts today. Truly encourage each woman here today, um, whether they're a mom or not, whether they are those are moms who consider themselves successful or not. And I think every parent, I know as a dad, I... I struggle in so many ways to consider myself a success. I, I see my failures bigger than my successes. But, Lord, I pray that you would encourage each of us, each mom here and each, each woman and man here, through what we're going to talk about. And this job, this particular assignment you've given us to raise up godly children is not easy. In fact, I'm convinced it's actually impossible. And, uh, Lord, we know that through you all things are possible. And so we need you. We need your help, we need your inspiration, your encouragement, your comfort, and when we make mistakes, as we so often do, um, we need you to help us learn from them and to help pick us up and keep us going on. We're a people of imperfect faith, and yet you have chosen to work in and through us. Lord, I also ask that you would strengthen the men here today, help us to uh, see how we can more effectively affirm and encourage the women who mean so much to us. And finally, Lord, uh, just pray that you'd be with Becky today and with little eloquence and uh, with Nate and their family. Thank you for the gift of their birth. And we, Lord, we, uh, our hearts are with them and ask just ask that you would bless them today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I was really excited last week when Stan shared about Abraham. And um, just a word of introduction. My name is Larry Short. My wife Darlene and I are... Um, kind of lay young adult pastors here at Elam. And uh, Pastor Martin, if you're not aware of this, is, is on a sabbatical. He um, uh, Facebooked me this morning and said, tell everyone I said hi and I miss them. They are at Christ the King Church up in Bellingham uh, worshiping with Wesley, which is the church that Wesley's attending as he's in school up there. And then after that, he gets to go see his granddaughter. I'm really jealous about that. We got to see our granddaughter a couple weeks ago. And uh, so we have two kids, uh, both, both grown kids, Nathan and, and Amanda. And Amanda has a daughter, and uh, because I have the pulpit and I can do this, I'm going to show you a granddaughter photo. <laughs> I promise it'll be the only one. This is Annabelle Ivy. Uh, she's now two and a half years old. She's really sweet. We'll just leave that up there the whole time. No. <laughs> okay. 
So uh, we are, um, even though we're empty nest, our kids are 27 and 30, we're not really empty nest because God has blessed us, as I think as you guys know, um, Pulse is our young adults group here. God's uh, really done great things through Pulse. Um, and it was um, my wife, Darlene, who, when our kids uh, left Elam, what, 11 years ago or so, recognized that um, there were a lot of kids in high school. We have a wonderful uh, high school ministry program here called Common Ground. But a lot of kids were exiting Common Ground, and there's really nothing for them, and they just they sort of disappeared. And that happened to our own two kids. They just kind of faded off. And so um, Darlene is really good at listening to the Lord. It wasn't her idea. I guess it was the Lord's idea. But he planted in her, her heart to, that we needed something here at Elam for uh, young adults to to really keep them engaged at, at a really critical time in their life when they're facing all these challenges in the public universities to 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 help equip them to face those so they can make the right decisions for themselves and so um, she she with with me together um, I saw the light <laughs> and and we started started pulse it wasn't called pulse then it's recently been a renamed pulse but um, our young adults ministry and that's been very cool. So we're no longer empty nest. We have Friday night meetings at our home, lots of kids there, and um, not kids, young adults now, and uh, Sunday morning uh, book studies at um, uh, Starbucks. Rachel Brandt uh, here leads those, and they're awesome. Um, real time of growing. We have lots of activities next weekend. We're going to do a biking, camping trip, uh, which anyone from Common Ground or Pulse is invited to participate in uh, Saturday and Sunday. We're going to bike up to Green Mountain Camp in Kitsap Peninsula and, and camp overnight on Saturday night. So we have a lot of fun. And um, we are definitely not empty nests. And, um, and that's, that's a credit to my wife, that she, she has taken the skills that um, she demonstrated and learned as a, as a parent to two young kids, and she's extended them after our kids left the home. And she essentially is doing what Titus 2 says. So Titus 2 basically says, older women, um, I'm going to paraphrase it, Reverent in the way that they live should be teaching younger women how to love God and their husbands and how to grow in, in faith. So we have uh, a couple of young ladies in our house, in and out throughout the week, that come and they spend time together. Um, they study the Word. Um, they they watch watch uh, videos, sermons. They they meet at coffee and just talk life. And she's doing the mentoring thing with kids. And she's not the only one here in this church that does that. I know a number of ladies that do that. Uh, uh, Mary Price does that, and I'm going to get in trouble mentioning names here probably, but Jackie Peterson I know does that, and Anne Grace, I think we heard about last week, has had that role in people's lives. And a lot of you ladies and, and guys are doing that in lives of young people here, and that's incredible ministry that's an extension of sort of your role as a parent. She's sort of, in a sense, she's sort of a second mom to some, some of these girls. Their first moms are great, but she's an, another voice to, to put God's truth into their lives. Is the role of parents important? Absolutely. It's critically important, as we know. Uh, but so is the function of so many of you here that are doing that, not just with young adults, but also children's ministry. What an incredible opportunity to speak truth into the lives of, of kids. I know Hillary Clinton said it takes a village. I don't think it takes a village. It, it takes a body of Christ to raise a child <laughs> and up in the, in the way that they should go and to speak truth in their lives. And if, if, if you're a parent here who isn't, just encouraging and, and fully availing your kids of the opportunities that we have here for other adults who love Jesus to, to come alongside them and speak truth in their life. I just encourage you to, to really um, engage them and, and see them become a part of that. 
So anyway, I digress a little bit. I was talking about Stan, how excited I was that he was preaching about Abraham, because Pulse is studying Genesis. And we had just studied Abraham. And um, Abraham, as you know, is called the father of our faith. Um, he, we know from, from Scripture that, as Stan shared, that he didn't, um, it wasn't his good works that earned him that title. It was the fact that he trusted God. His works weren't always that good. And um, it earned him his friendship with God. Not earned him, but his faith created his friendship with God and his walk with God. And it created the fact that he's a model for us. Stan, I don't think, didn't share that his wife Sarah is also listed in Hebrews 11 as a model for us. And so we're going to look at, at the scripture. that I think Stan probably shared this last week. We're going to look at it again real quick. And I'll read it as we do. For he, Abraham, was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children, because she considered him faithful, who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and as countless as the sand on the seashore. So Sarah is listed with a number of other women in Hebrews 11's Hall of Faith. We're going to talk about some of those others as well. But Sarah, you see, is, you'll see, is also commended for her faith in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 3, verses uh, 3 through 7. It says, Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that, you, that of your inner self the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers." Okay, now I know somebody's going to say, time out, you said do no harm, and you're, all of a sudden you're talking about Sarah calling her husband Lord. <laughs> and, you know, Sarah being the weaker partner. What the heck? Uh, <laughs> is this supposed to be an encouraging Mother's Day thing, you know? And I know some of the guys out there are going, cool, I can probably retreat to my man cave now and have my woman feed me grapes, and I can say Larry said it was okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, guys... Uh, First of all, I think we need to understand the big picture and the context for these passages and what was really happening in the story of Abraham and Sarah. The Bible is brutally honest, okay, when it comes to our failings. And and Stan talked about this a little bit. You look at Abraham's life, and he's our father of faith, but he had some major, major uh, missteps of faith, didn't he? Um, He... Uh, when God promised him an heir from his own loins, rather than wait, he agreed to this harebrained plan where he would take the Egyptian handmaid of his wife and take one for the team and um, have a child, Ishmael, by Hagar, right? That's a pretty big misstep. Um, wouldn't think that would be real good for your relationship with your wife. I don't know. Um, he, he did this thing twice, not once, which blows, blows my mind, but twice where when he is visiting a foreign country in the presence of powerful foreign leaders, 
He gets really afraid because his wife's really gorgeous. And he says, oh, she's not my wife, she's my sister. And so his wife is literally taken into the harem of the king, and but for the hand of God intervening and protecting him and protecting her, you know, she would have been absorbed in that harem in, in the ways that, you know, I'm not going to say, but we're all thinking of probably. So because of his cowardice, here, here Abraham is supposed to be protecting his wife, and, um, you know, the Bible says, uh, men, love your wives, lay down your lives for them as, as Jesus laid down his life for the church. That's not exactly what he was doing there, okay? <laughs> not once, but twice. So Abraham had some major missteps and was like, I'd say all of us guys are at times, a big jerk, right? Um, so you put that in context with this passage and reading what we just read, um, and all of a sudden I think it makes a little, gives you a little perspective on Sarah and what, what she was about and what was happening. Sarah obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. She did what he said. You, for you are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Well, she had... Huge opportunity there to give way to fear, didn't she? And we would have justified her in doing so. There are two ways that we can respond to when challenges like this when people fail us, as Abraham failed Sarah. We can, we can respond in fear and frustration, or we can look to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to do what you told me. I'm going to, to submit myself because that's what you say, and I'm going to trust that you will protect me and it will be all right in the end. And that is the choice that Sarah made. Amen? So she is in the, the hall of faith. Um, she, and she's in the hall of faith because she believed God. And the incredible thing that he said, do you realize she was 90 years old when she became pregnant? Uh, you want to talk tough? I was going to try to crack a joke about how uh, Becky made it look easy <laughs> with her, her brief labor yesterday. And I thought, ah, that's probably not a good idea. Well, I just said it. Never mind. <laughs> there goes the do no harm thing. Okay. <laughs> But imagine being 90 and being pregnant and then having a baby and weaning that baby and raising up a toddler when you're 92, having someone with a terrible twos when you're 92. Uh, <laughs> okay, uh, she, she was a tough bird. And scripture says that, that she believed God. And then uh, now I know, again, you're saying, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, Sarah, wasn't there a part about her in the tent laughing when, remember, the angel of the Lord came to visit, three, three angels came to visit, and um, they prepared them a meal. This was right before Sodom and Gomorrah. And they prepared them a meal, and, and the angels reiterated the promise. They said, this time next year, we're, we'll return, and you're going to have a, a son. And Sarah was in the tent, and she laughed silently to herself, and she, she laughed. And the angel of the Lord, who was Jesus, said, why is your wife laughing? And... And she said, oh, I didn't laugh. Oh, yes, you did laugh. <laughs> he saw all. He knew that she was. And so she, her faith was not perfect either, was it? Uh, she was also involved, as you know, in the, hey, take my handmaiden and let's have a baby that way. So she was a partner with Abraham, not only in faith, but in some of his imperfect faith, his lack of faith. And so how are we to uh, respond to this? Um, there's a, a scripture that we're going to read that to me is a, a key, okay? And it's um, here we go. It is in Matthew 17. 
The story that, that occurred in uh, Jesus' walk with the disciples, that he had, he had sent them out. Jesus really threw his disciples in the water and let them find out some things by the hard way. And this was one of those times. And they were trying to heal someone who later was revealed, a boy who had a demon, who, who had seizures and was throwing himself into the fire and into the water. And here's the verse. When, we, when they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I put up with you? How long, uh, sorry, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon. It came out of the boy and was, he was healed at that moment. Then the, the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? Jesus replied, because you have so little faith. Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. So you see the context for this passage. Um, and it's interesting to see what Jesus says to his disciples in answer to their question. How come it didn't work? How come it didn't work for us? He, he basically said, he didn't say you have no faith. He said you have so little faith. And he's suggesting that they aspire to faith the size of a mustard seed. Well, their faith apparently was smaller than a mustard seed. It wasn't a mountain. It wasn't a molehill. It was apparently smaller than a mustard seed. It was maybe a, a, a dust moat-sized piece of faith or maybe a molecule or an atom-sized piece of faith. I don't know. It was teensy, teensy, teensy. And he said, if you only had faith the size of a mustard seed, this would work for you. And so, you know, I'm, I'm planning a spring garden. And I, I thought, well, it'd be interesting to see how big a mustard seed is. So I went and bought a packet of mustard seeds, and I got a photo here of a mustard seed that I pulled out of that packet. Can you see it there right between thumb and forefinger, that little dark spot on the, the photo? And I also, there's a, for comparison, I set it down with a, uh, there you go. There you can see it, I think. I set it down next to an avocado seed. We all, if you're from California, you know what an avocado seed looks like next one. And that's to the left, and then there's a, a kind of a dried-up snow pea seed in the center, and then the mustard seed is to the right of that. Pretty small, pretty minuscule seed. This wasn't exactly uh, Jesus complimenting us, was it? <laughs> and he had made it look easy. He had, you know, incredible faith in his father. He walked with his father. He had mountain-sized faith, and he said it, and it happened. And he made it look easy. And he said, if you had faith the size of that mustard seed, it could happen for you. The disciples' faith wasn't that large. Let's look at what happens on the next slide to a mustard seed. This is a, a photo I found. This is not my garden. That's not me in the <laughs> turban. <laughs> but this is a photo of a mustard plant, a mustard tree that grew from one of those seeds in, in the Middle East somewhere. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of mustard there. That's, you know, you could eat a lot of Costco death dogs with that mustard. Um, sorry. That's not... A Costco employee called them Costco death dogs when he was talking to me. That's not my phrase, okay? I love them, by the way. <laughs> so I think the key here is if we just can up our faith just a little bit. <laughs> and this is both a rebuke and it's an encouragement to me because it, it, it addresses my expectations or what, what are the expectations God has of me? Does God expect me to have mountain-sized faith? Not really. Does God expect me even to have molehill-sized faith? No, he expects faith the size of that, that mustard seed. But there's something that happens with that mustard seed. In order for it to grow, you have to plant it, right? 
And it can take root, then it can grow, and it can multiply. And there's a, a number of verses I love in Scripture that I think this is really a key principle for us in our Christian life because um, we often expect for things to happen without planting to occur. And the, the first one is in John 12:24, where Jesus said, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Now, the context for this verse is Jesus, two days before going to the cross, talking about his death, burial, and resurrection. He was talking about himself. He's about to lay down the body willingly. Didn't have to, but he did it because he loves us. He's about to lay his body into the dust to plant it. It would be no more. It would be gone. It would be uh, the biggest gift he could possibly give us himself. Buried in the tomb. And what was the result of that? What was the springing up of the mustard tree? It was resurrection and it was redemption for you and I, for each of us, praise God, that occurred as a result of that. Um, in that picture of that mustard tree that you saw, if, if, you, if, if, you, if a seed dropped off that tree in the ground, we wouldn't be able to see it in that photo. It's insignificant compared to the result of what happens. Scripture says that, that Christ endured the, the shame, went to the cross willingly, endured the shame on our behalf, knowing the result, knowing what would happen knowing that he would redeem you and I and each of us. We'd all be, have an opportunity to, to be forgiven and to receive his grace and to say, yes, Lord, I am willing myself now to be planted. So what does that mean for us to plant ourselves? Are we all being called to, um, to lay down our lives? And the answer is yes, if necessary. Give it up. That doesn't mean each of us is going to get martyred, but it does mean that God expects us to invest what he's given us, just as he invested his all in us, to invest in, in love and thanks in return to him, to invest our all in him. And this theme of investment is woven throughout scripture. One of my favorite verses, which I think is really, um, not, it's not talked about a lot maybe, but, but I love it if, because I think it really encapsulates this principle. It's Matthew 6, 21, where Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And I have so many people that I talk to that say, oh, my heart, just, you know, it's not there, it's not in it, whatever, you know, I don't enjoy, don't enjoy giving, the, the thought of giving, just, you know, whatever. Whatever it is, um, the thought of investment is not there. And well, of course you don't, because you haven't done it yet. You've got to do it before your heart will follow along behind it. And that's a principle that you'll discover. If you, if you start tithing, You'll discover it's not a burden, it's a joy. Because your heart follows your investment. We can, in, And this is true of any area of life, right? We can invest in anything. We can invest in our jobs. We can invest in our bigger, nicer homes. We can invest in uh, more, more, more time with sports, whatever it is. And our heart will follow. It'll be excited about what we've invested in because this is, Jesus recognized this is a fundamental principle of the way we are. So the challenge is to think, how do I invest in faith? Faith is an investment. And I think there are some clues about how we do that. Matthew 6.33 says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Um, The things that we are tempted to invest in, if we deny those 
and seek first and invest in his kingdom and his righteousness first, we'll find that all those other things are automatic, according to Scripture. And that's, that's something we have to take on faith. We find it hard to believe. We find it hard to figure out what that would look like, but that's what Scripture says. It takes faith. You have to plan it. Finally, in, from the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 29, uh, in terms of our investing, seeking God, there's a promise that anybody on this planet can claim, and very few people do, and it's an incredible promise. It's right here, and Moses was talking to the children of Israel about taking, going into the promised land and what their life would be like when he did. And he said, But if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. If you're willing to invest in God and seeking him, like, uh, remember the parable of the the widow who comes to a judge for justice and bugs him every day. And an unrighteous judge, this was a parable that Jesus gave. And, you know, knocking at the door every day and bugging him. And finally, he relents just to get her off his back. <laughs> Jesus basically was saying, God is like that, only he's not unrighteous, only he loves you, only he, he longs to give you what you're looking for. He longs to give us himself. And all we have to do is ask. And one of the challenges to me is, am I asking? Am I seeking? Am I knocking every day when I get up? Am I bowing my head and praying and saying, God, give, give me the gifts that you want. Give me your presence. Please fill me with your Holy Spirit. And Christ promised if, that God is a good Father who gives good gifts. And if we as evil fathers will give decent gifts to our kids... How much more will God, who's a, who's a father who really loves us, give us the best? It's incredible. We don't ask. Um, and it's to our shame that we don't. Prayer, I think, should be viewed as an investment. It's investment time. Moms, when you're uh, locked in the bathroom trying to find a few minutes to pray and your kids are pounding the door, Mommy! You can tell them, Honey, I'm managing our investments, okay? Leave me alone. <laughs> I'm managing our portfolio. <laughs> you are investing time in prayer, and, and um, the kids will take care of themselves. Not exactly, but <laughs> you know better than I. I'm not going to shut it down. I'm not going to do any harm. Okay. Do no harm. Do no harm. <laughs> so, anyway, um, so it's very clear that Sarah was an imperfect woman of faith, and I'm encouraged by that because... Um, God does not expect perfection. He expects mustard seed size. If we plant it, he'll take it, he'll run with it. It will grow and it will become a mustard tree. And uh, Sarah is commended in the hall of faith for that. We sort of call her our mother of faith. What about other women in the Bible? Now, I asked my Facebook friends last week to help me with this. I said, who are your favorite women of the Bible who are women of imperfect faith who have made an impact on the world? And I, I got a number of them. I'm going to display them here and we'll talk about them just each of them really quickly. And this is not a comprehensive list. list. Somebody said to me today, well, Ruth isn't on your list. Ruth should be on your list. Absolutely, she should be. Ruth is an incredible woman of faith, and you know the whole story of Ruth. Um, but this list came from, from my Facebook friends, and, and I think there will be some names on here that may surprise you. Lydia. Lydia was the first documented convert to Christianity in all of Europe. And she gave hospitality to Paul. Her faith resulted in the salvation of her entire household. The church in Thyatira got its start as a result. Deborah, several people mentioned Deborah. Deborah, the story of Deborah in the Bible is incredible. She was a, a judge, a ruler of Israel. 
And she was a warrior, <laughs> warrior princess, seriously. Um, she, the uh, general of, of Israel at the time, basically she told him, you know, God is saying we need to, uh, the, the, um, uh, the, the enemy who was bugging Israel, his name was Sisera, was just wreaking havoc, and she got a word from God, and she said, we need to take him out. We need to go, and God will be with us, he'll fight for us. We need to go take him out. And uh, the general at the time, Barak uh, of Israel, said, I ain't doing it, not unless you're there too. <laughs> Guys, okay, that's the kind of woman that, that Deborah was. Uh, generals did not want to go into battle unless she was standing by their side. That's a pretty incredible uh, statement about um, Deborah. And so they did. They pursued Sisera. Another uh, woman of faith, Jael, if I'm pronouncing that right, a military heroine, was just in her tent. And uh, Sisera fled into her tent, seeking refuge, because the battle was not going well for him. And she calmed him down. She fed him more milk. Put her, he was really tired, put his head on her lap, stroked his hair. And then when he fell asleep, she drove a temple through his, uh, sorry, a stake through his temple. Ouch. <laughs> so we have, this, we have a girl in, our, in, in Pulse named J.L., I tell her, I tell people, I give her a hard time. I shouldn't do that, probably. I tell people, don't fall asleep during Bible study. <laughs> Miriam, Moses' older sister. Now, we don't talk a lot about Miriam, but do you realize what Miriam did? She followed along after Moses uh, was placed as an infant in the little reed, that basket of reeds, just placed on the Nile in faith because that was... It was like, God, you have to rescue him because he's going to get killed otherwise. Pharaoh was killing all the firstborn children of Israel. And Miriam followed along and watched and saw that the daughter of Pharaoh found the basket, pulled the child up out, picked him up, cuddled him, said, oh, what a sweet baby, you know. And she then approached the daughter of Pharaoh, who's probably surrounded by all these guards. She's a Jew. They're killing Jews. That took an incredible amount of courage. And she said, hey, I know a good nursemaid. If you want one for this, this cute little baby. And, and uh, the daughter of Pharaoh said, yeah, I'd love one. And so she went and got Moses' mother. <laughs> Brilliant. And Moses' mother was able to raise him as his nursemaid in the household of, of Pharaoh. Incredible story. Uh, Miriam's faith and courage and brilliance made it happen. Mary Magdalene. Do you realize Mary Magdalene showed herself equal to any of Jesus' disciples when it came to courage and faith? She was there when Jesus was crucified. She was one of the first ones there when he was resurrected in the tomb. She was doing what the guys were supposed to be doing. And an incredible example of faith and courage. And there were other women that, and I had never even heard of these two, Joanna and Susanna. Have you? I don't know how many people here have heard of Joanna and Susanna. Luke 8 says that, these were among a group of women who had been delivered by Jesus of demonic oppression or disease, who then gave of their own financial means, not their husband's means, but their own financial means, to support the ministry that Jesus and his disciples were doing. Incredible. I never knew that. Jesus had a group of supporters who were delivered, women, and one of them, uh, Joanna, was the wife of Herod's household manager. Herod was the bad guy. He was the enemy, right? Um, so that's a pretty risky thing to take her money and to give it to Jesus and the disciples when her husband is, or when her husband's, her husband is the manager of the king's household. Incredible courage. Phoebe, this one will get me in big trouble with uh, some of the elders here, probably. Ooh, silence. I like it. Uh, <laughs> 
Phoebe was the deacon at the a deacon at the church in Centria. And uh, in Romans 16, the first verse, Paul hails her as a noteworthy deacon at the church of Centria. Um, so I think those among us who believe that women are you know, somehow unworthy for certain roles in life should take note of this, and they should wrestle with, with this verse. By the way, when we read Scripture, we have a tendency, I think, to... Um, primarily when guys read Scripture, <laughs> we have a tendency to put our own sort of filter on on things about the roles that women should play in our lives. And, and for instance, if I, if I were to tell you, you know, think, think about what, what a prophet looks like. You probably think of Elijah and Jeremiah and grizzled beards and in the cases of Elisha, bald hair. Bald hair? Baldness. Um, so, but you don't think about nine women who are in Scripture who are um, said to be prophets, prophetesses, the female version of a prophet, to the Lord, and are godly in that role. That was their assigned role. And uh, at least one or two of them saved Israel, saved an entire nation in the role that they played. And if you're more interested in that list, I don't have it today because I don't have time, but, but we can talk about that. The Samaritan woman, John 4, I don't think we frequently uh, think of her as um, a model of faith. But when you think about it, this woman in, really exhibited an incredible amount of courage. Jesus called her out for her lifestyle for her dysfunctional family. By the way, Friday night we had uh, a dysfunctional families of the Bible night in Pulse. We called it uh, putting the fun back into dysfunctional. <laughs> and we played this, we played this game, uh, testing your knowledge on dysfunctional families of the Bible and stuff. It was actually a lot of fun. I really, really enjoyed it. Do you realize how many dysfunctional, every family in the Bible is really dysfunctional, including godly families, which is also very encouraging to me. Despite uh, whatever this woman's name was at the well in Samaria, she was a Samaritan woman, and despite the shame involved in her dysfunctionality, having five husbands, living with a guy who wasn't her husband, she went and brought her entire village back to hear about Jesus. (laughs) That's pretty cool. Uh, That takes courage. That takes guts. The final one on the list, Esther. And Darlene, uh, and I talked about Esther. Uh, I think Darlene's been studying Esther with one of the girls. Uh, Esther's, I think you know the story of Esther. She was a concubine in um, the court of the king of Persia at a time when the Jews were uh, seriously, when there were people wanting to exterminate them. And um, being a concubine would be, you would be marginalized. She was a good-looking woman. That's the only reason she was there, okay, from the perspective of the king of Persia. Um, So she was there, you know, for her looks, not for her mouth. <laughs> and anytime she opened her mouth, probably she risked having the part of her body that had her mouth attached cut off. Uh, and that literally, it says that. It says, you know, if, the king, if you approached the king and he did not extend the scepter to you, you would be beheaded. No questions asked. She, as part of what she did to save Israel, to save the nation, she approached the king, she spoke to him, she... Uh, very cleverly revealed the plot of wicked Haman who was planning to create, commit genocide against the, the Jews who were living in captivity and suggested that he be hanged on his own gallows. <laughs> Pretty cool. And he was. And uh, So talk about a woman of courage and um, faith. That was Esther. Now, is there any common thread you see in every single woman that we've discussed here? One of them is that in none that I can detect 
what, uh, the scripture indicate their primary assignment, their primary thing, what they did was related to the children that they raised. They all had an assignment from God. Very, very difficult. Required a lot of faith, a lot of courage. And not to say that raising children isn't a supremely important assignment from God, but I'm here today to say let's um, recognize in each other the assignments that God gives us and, and value those, um, pray for each other, lift them up. So final thing I wanted to do before we, we share is talk a little bit about my mom, who uh, to me, as I mentioned, was the most significant person in my life um, before I met Darlene. Uh, Marjorie Short Callick is her name. She was born June 15, 1936 in Phoenix, Arizona. And um, she had a, a believing mom, unbelieving dad. Um, she had a, an older sister and I believe a younger sister. Uh, three daughters in the family. They moved to Santa Monica, California, which is where I was ultimately born. She uh, went to college at S- Seattle Pacific University, SPU. Well, let me back up a bit. Before that happened, uh, they went to... Her, uh, her dad allowed her mom to take the family to church in uh, West Valley Baptist Church in Santa Monica, California, where the kids received, all three of them received Christ. And praise God for me, because that's probably why I received Christ. So I'm really grateful for uh, my grandma as well as my mom. And uh, at West Valley Baptist, my oldest aunt, Dorothy, who is my favorite living person right now in all the world probably in this category, um, heard the call to missions. And this was back when Biola University was just getting started in L.A. back in the, you know, I think early 40s. And um, she, she studied nursing. She had an incredible gift for language. She spent 50-plus years in the southern part of the Sahara Desert in Niger practicing nursing. There were times when she was the only medical professional in a hospital where there were brain surgeries to be done and serious, serious things that they dealt with. And, uh, and then she kind of transitioned during that time from nursing to translation. And when my brother and I had our typesetting business back in California, we would work with her um, in translation and helping. It was really fascinating how we translate the gospel into using our typesetting business. Uh, and she was putting together versions of the Bible. She was instrumental in leading entire, an entire people group to Christ in that area. Amazing lady. I won't talk the whole time about my aunt, but she's, she's still alive. She retired from missions. She's living in a, a nurse, in a, not a nursing home, in a missions retirement home in Sebring, Florida. Still talk to her a lot. Uh, I brought her here before, and I think some of you have met her. She's, she's a wonderful lady. Just love her to death. Dorothy is her name. Then, uh, so then after Dorothy, my mom, uh, received Christ, went to Seattle Pacific University, met my dad, who was not yet a Christian. Uh, they got married while students at SBU. And she became pregnant with me, and that kind of ruined things in terms of college. They uh, moved, while she was pregnant with me, back to Santa Monica, California, where her parents and I was born in Santa Monica, California. Oh, by the way, I have a photo of my mom's high school photo here. As you can see, she was a lovely woman. And, um, and also, they, so my mom and dad got married, uh, started a family. Uh, next photo shows, um, and I love this photo because the cat glasses my mom is wearing are just classic. And I'm wearing them too, probably. Well, so is my dad. So <laughs> this was uh, my, uh, my three natural brothers and sisters and I, my younger brother, Don, who many of you met. He lives real close by here and works with me at World Vision. 
our sister Sandy the Blonde and my youngest sister Kay, who now lives up in Bellingham with her family. And uh, then we adopted a younger uh, brother um, named Leon Woolley, um, who's my youngest brother, Lee, after this. So now things were not easy for my mom. She, uh, my dad did become a believer through my mom's influence, uh, but, but there was a lot of um, strife in, in their home. And I, I really suspect if, if our home existed today in this society, kind of with its easy no-fault divorce, which didn't happen back then, I really doubt whether they would have still been together. There was a lot of fighting and difficulty that I remember. There was, there was a lot of poverty. My dad early on um, struggled to make ends meet, and often there wasn't enough food on the table. Um, Darlene was appalled when she first uh, met me and went out to dinner with my family because we had developed this habit of we'd pray, say grace, and at the amen, everyone would dive <laughs> for whatever was on the table. <laughs> and that came from our early, early days, pretty much, of just basically not quite having enough to go around. And my dad ended up being fairly wealthy and, and uh, ended up retiring early as a millionaire, which is credit, credit to my dad. Um, this is my mom and dad after retirement. They had a farm in, in Alabama. Um, so my mom's influence on me, um, I guess the primary thing was that she believed in me. And she, she invested in, in her kids the way all parents invest in, in their kids. But um, she saw, she didn't, see my, she didn't see my faults and my failings, but she didn't dwell on those. She, um, she was the first one to recognize, when well, I didn't recognize it, latent writing talent in me, which, which, which ended up, I went through Biola as a journalist, as a writer, and, and uh, started my career as a freelance writer. I wrote a couple books and things like that. And it sort of... Um, then blended into to my current career in communications with the Internet for World Vision. She, she knew that I would, was to marry Darlene before I knew it. And she advised me. She said, you better move a little faster. She's going to get away and get tired of waiting for you, buddy. You know? and she, she, um, when I was eight, I became a believer, and she was the one who invested in me, prayed me to that point. I didn't get serious with God and really start investing in God until I was 18. She prayed me to that point. All of the good things I can think of in my life came about as a result of my mom's um, influence and investment and prayer in me. Uh, she died in November, on November 18th of 2000 uh, after several years of struggle with breast cancer. Very young, 64. Even after she died, uh, she was a blessing to me in so many ways. Her legacy, uh, there's a story I don't have time to tell, which some, sometime I will share with you about something that happened on the day she died that just blessed my socks off. And um, even today, I, I'm not sure I could tell it today. So we'll, we'll do that some other day. We just want all of you to know, all of you ladies here today, that we love you, we treasure you in Christ. And I hope uh, today is an encouragement to you. I hope it's a blessing that you get a little bit of time off and... Um, and I hope that, that you'll be uh, just encouraged to continue the investment that you are making in the lives of people around you here in this church and elsewhere. Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for the women in our lives. We, we love them. We love you. You minister to us through them. And um, we are privileged to be brothers in Christ, to the sisters in Christ who are here. I know that we're different. Know that you make us different, but help us to understand each other better so that we can love each other better, support each other better, forgive each other, which we really need all the time, and just um, 
continue to weave us together, men, women, and you, in a three-stranded cord that will just get stronger and stronger. Thank you for your, the fact that you are there, your sacrifice for us, and that you make this all possible. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.